united, we can and will overcome. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. Today, we're going to be handing over this episode of Belly Getting By American Carnage to a conversation we've just had with Dr. Elizabeth Ingelson about what it's like to be in the USA right now, the US relationship with China, and what that means for the world. Em, of course, Lizzie is a colleague and a friend of yours from your days in the US. Yeah, we actually met for the first time in Sydney when Lizzie was doing her PhD there and we've crossed paths a number of times. Um, The last time I saw her was in Washington, D.C. in the middle of a blizzard when it was minus 26. Um, So it's really exciting to, to cross paths with her again in very different circumstances. It was awesome as well to talk to her because she has just moved to New Haven, Connecticut because she's got a job at Yale. So we talked a little bit about our different experiences of the Yale bubble, um, her experience in driving from Texas to Connecticut in the middle of a global pandemic, and also her own research work in the history of the relationship between the United States and China. Yeah, it's, look, it's it's a pretty long interview, but I think it's one that's absolutely worth it. It was worth our time to speak to Lizzie. It's worth everyone's time to listen to it. You know, part of the reason for that is because, you know, since we, since Emma and I started this podcast, We've really been. What we're trying to do is to bring is to bring educated opinion outside out out from universities and bring it to a wider public. And I think Lizzie's work and the way she talks about it is a perfect example of what we're trying to achieve there. Um, it's also it's also a conversation that I think is worth listening to because it really for me it hit home how impoverished conversations about China are, especially in Australia, where I feel like I personally am constantly pulled into this binary thinking about where we have to choose between our relationship with China and our relationship with the USA. And if you, you know, if you choose the USA, then you're an imperialist lapdog. If you choose China, then you're a communist. And it was really good to have that space and that time to get to both the the kind of the nitty gritty detail of China and China's international relations, but also to get a really big picture of where China sits in the world. And especially as we face, you know, these huge global challenges, specifically climate change. So that's what we're going to be doing with this episode of the podcast, but we'll be back tomorrow for our pre-election non-preview. I think that's what we're calling it, Em. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, so we're going to be hedging our bets about who will win the US election next week, whether it's Joe Biden or Donald Trump. And we will be joined by another guest, Matt Bevan, who is an ABC journalist and will hopefully be well known to listeners as the host of the ABC podcasts, Russia, if you're listening, and more recently, America, if you're listening. But for now, we're going to hand over to our conversation with Dr. Elizabeth Ingelson, better known to us as Lizzie. And just by way of introduction, in addition, of course, to being an excellent human, Lizzie is also an excellent 
historian. So she has a PhD, as I said, from the University of Sydney, which she completed in 2017. Um, Before that, she was a pre-doctoral national fellow at the University of Virginia at the Miller Centre. She then moved to the Centre for Presidential History at the Southern Methodist University in Texas. And she is now, as I said, at Yale University, where she is the Henry Chauncey Jr. 57 postdoctoral associate. While she's at Yale, Lizzie is writing not one, but two books, which are under contract. The first is Making Made in China, The Transformation of US-China Trade in the 1970s with Harvard University Press. And the second is China and the United States Since 1949, An International History, which is under contract with Bloomsbury. So here's Lizzie. So Lizzie, I discovered through Instagram that a few months ago you got an amazing new job at Yale University in Connecticut, but that meant driving pretty much across the country in the middle of a pandemic. So I wanted to start with asking you what that was like. (laughs) Yeah. um, Well, firstly, hi, Em, and hi, Chloe. It's lovely (laughs) to be here. Um, It's really nice to connect uh, in this sort of virtual world that we're all living in. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the Dallas, I was moving from Dallas, Texas to New Haven, Connecticut, um, which is about two and a half thousand kilometers. And I sort of looked it up and it's about the same length as driving from Sydney to Alice Springs. Uh, and honestly, yes, it was <laughs> in the middle of a global pandemic. And yes, it's on the wrong side of the road. And I'm driving to a city that I'd never been through before. Um, but it was, it was ultimately, it was fine. I just sort of packed myself, my dog, my 20 plants, way too many books and some clothes. And we sort of just drove, um, we did it over five days. So I was driving about five or six hours a day, um, which in contrast to a lot of my U S friends is like very slow way of approaching this trip. (laughs) Many of them were saying, oh, you know, they would have done it in half the time, you know, 12 hour days on the road. But for me, you know, like. Six hours of driving a day was enough. And was it like, I mean, you've, you've obviously done a lot of travel in the United States. Was, was it, are things noticeably different across different states in terms of how people are responding to the pandemic? I mean, I was coming from Dallas, Texas, where even though Dallas is a very big sort of uh, cosmopolitan city, the COVID response was fairly minimal to say the least um so i you know masks were hardly a thing we had one of the shortest uh shutdowns of the city in the whole country so it was only 10 days of shutdown so i was already coming from a context where the sort of covid response was pretty minimal and uh, i guess that so that was my benchmark if i put it that way and so yes driving across the country i was seeing a whole range of different responses to the um the pandemic, especially at, you know, uh, petrol stations and the rest of it, where people are just, uh, there's zero social distancing or the rest of it. Um, but I would sp- I would say that the most uh, striking responses were less in terms of COVID and more in terms of the election. Um, so I was sort of doing this sort of six-day stint, and the final stint was in this town called New Bloomfield, which is in sort of rural Pennsylvania. And I thought, okay, great, like it's my final stop. I'll be in like 
rural Pennsylvania in the mountains and how beautiful. I hadn't somehow you you can intellectualize things and then you can experience them. I hadn't quite. I mean, of course, I know that Pennsylvania is Trump heartland. Rural Pennsylvania is Trump heartland. But I hadn't quite connected that until I got there. And I'm like, my the neighbors of the Airbnb have these giant Trumps. The Airbnb I'm staying in itself had, you know, this sort of evangelical Christian literature within within the room I was staying in or the house I was staying in. Uh, I went down into the town and not only were like these gigantic Trump flags everywhere, but also Blue Lives Matter flags, which are, um, you know, American flags that are co-opted in support of the police. And it's sort of this blurring of to be an American is to support the police state. Um, there were Confederate flags as well. And so you have this real mix in this town of sort of on the one hand support uh, for Trump, but that's intertwined with sort of evangelicalism, it's intertwined with police support, it's intertwined with white supremacy. And so that, you know, that was a real, that was a, you know, <laughs> it was an interesting moment. Uh, and especially I think at the moment, given that Pennsylvania is, as we know, a crucial state for Trump. Yeah, I think that's really interesting to see. And it sounds like, you know, the, the Biden campaign is, is worried, quite worried about Pennsylvania. And it sounds like your experience tees up pretty well with that. Uh, yeah, I would say so. I mean, although this is one town, um, I don't want to sort of draw inferences too much about sort of what's going to happen um, uh, at a, at the, on election night. I'm very conscious that there's a whole bunch of tea leaves reading going on here in the US and maybe we can get into that in a minute about what that sort of says uh, but you know if, if we're thinking about uh, if we're thinking about sort of I think if we're thinking about sort of responses to the election I think another way of telling this story would be to talk of my time here in New Haven as well so here in New Haven one of the major sort of and most popular coffee chains is this um cafe called um and you probably know it blue state coffee i do and, I, I remember it well yeah and so blue state coffee is frankly a fairly obnoxiously named cafe right that's sort of celebrating connecticut as being a blue state and yet you know i drive 10 minutes out of the sort of Yale bubble and there are Trump flags everywhere and there are Blue Lives Matter flags everywhere. I went kayaking um, back when it was still warm here in Connecticut and, you know, there were all these all these boats with Trump flags and, and the Blue Lives Matter flags and Confederate flags even as well. And so these things are not just sort of limited uh, to either rural Pennsylvania or to the South, but it's, it's you know, it's interspersed throughout uh, American society. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I mean, that's for what it's worth. That was my exact experience of, of New Haven as as well, that you have this kind of, I guess, like, you know, I was always reluctant to use the word bubble, but but that is kind of exactly what it is. You know, at, at times you kind of cross a street and and everything is different. You know, you're confronted with, with a completely different culture, you know, but sort of block by block. And I guess what, so I'm sort of interested in what you think about the the way that people, particularly in Australia, we get this as well. The way that people talk about Americans and and that kind of bubble, because a lot of the time the the coverage that we get is like this is what real Americans think. You know, Americans in rural Pennsylvania or like the the outer burbs of of New Haven or Connecticut. This is they they are the real Americans, and this is what they think, and we have to pay attention to what they are saying. But of course, you know, as much as Yale and the, and the people at, at Yale 
are in a bubble, <laughs> they are also real Americans, you know, they are real people. So I'm wondering if, you know, is it is it ever possible to talk about Americans as voters or, or, or are we just too, are we generalising too much? Well, I would say, so on the one hand, I would say that you can't speak of an American voter any more than you can talk of a singular Australian voter or a singular British voter. Um, you know, of course, of course, there is, you know, we're humans, right? We're all different. Um, but one of the ways in which I suppose uh, your question speaks to bigger concerns is that the, the way in which the American electoral system operates and the way in which American democracy operates, it necessitates this sort of, this, this um, separating out of certain kinds of people. And so you create a kind of person who is a suburban mum or a kind of person who is Latinx or Asian American. And the problem with the sort of potent mix that we have of the electoral college and gerrymandering that makes sort of a real disincentive for political leaders to appeal to a broad section of the American public. Um, and there's this really long history, an extraordinarily troubled history of racist voting practices that include things like poll taxes, literacy tests. Um, you know, more recently we have photo ID requirements and voter list purges. And what these do is that they attack certain groups within the United States. It, it overwhelmingly hurts poorer people, less educated people, um, uh, those who, whose voices we most need to be represented in politics. Uh, and so one of the things that sort of happened in 1965 was the United States sort of passed this Voting Rights Act and it aimed partly to change this. It, it tried at least to uh, require states because of course voting occurs at a state level. It required the states um, with histories of voter discrimination elsewhere to get federal approval before they changed their voting rules. And there's this um, really important moment in 2013 uh, when the Supreme Court overturned this, uh, this rule. And now states don't need federal approval to change their voting rules. They can just change them. Um, and an extraordinary book on this, if I can make a recommendation, uh, is Carol Anderson. She's a professor of African-American studies at Emory, and she's written a very, very powerful book called One Person, No Vote. And it's looking at this history of 2013 and how the voter suppression that sort of came from this legislative change has really changed the ways in which American democracy can operate. Awesome. And we, we, we'll, we can link to that in, in the show notes. Um, given, given that... Lizzie, you know, what you're saying about the, the state of American democracy, that's something Chloe and I have been talking about a bit, is that, you know, American democracy have been, has been, if not broken, fundamentally flawed for a very long time. You know, Trump hasn't created this situation where democracy is undermined. He, he's kind of, he is a product of that that system, that broken system and that undermining of, of democracy. But it seems that, and, and I, I guess I'm kind of reaching back to your comment about, about kind of blue state coffee and the, com the complacency, I suppose, of, of many, um, I guess, comfortable, comfortable Americans. It seems from here, at least, that just despite everything that you have just said about the state of de democracy, people 
people have seemed seemed to have relaxed a, a bit about the election, you know, given given Biden's extraordinary poll numbers. You know, we've said a, no, a number of times, like in, in normal circumstances, those kind of polling numbers would lead you to think we're looking at a Reagan re-election campaign or, you know, a, a complete kind of landslide defeat. And, and given that kind of people seem to be talking a lot less about the flaws in American democracy and about Trump, you know, t- talking about whether he's going to accept the result of an election. Is is that your sense of things? Like, do you do you think people are are feeling kind of relaxed in New Haven where you are? Are, are people confident? So the short answer would be no. Um, I've been really struck uh, by the difference in the Australian media. I've been sort of you know, it's always harder when you're overseas to keep up with Australian media or media from home. But, you know, from what I have been engaging with and from sort of talking with family and friends, I've been extraordinarily struck by this sense of um, it's a shoe in for Biden, etc. And in the United States, uh, not only in New Haven, but more broadly, um, it's really, uh, there's an extraordinary palpable sense that everything is on the line for this election. And I think one of the reasons for that is the memory of 2016 is just had such an impact on uh, the American voting uh, public and the, and the ways in which uh, so many uh, Americans, particularly liberal Americans, uh, responded to 2016 with a real sense of devastation and shock. And so I think what we see at the moment is this trepidation and this fear that something is going to go awry just as it had gone in 2016. Lizzie, do you think in in that scenario where where you know Biden Biden has a landslide victory and and is inaugurated somehow, do you think Biden is equipped to start to deal with that? I don't know. I is the real answer. And I think when we think about a Biden presidency, um, it's not just Biden. It's Kamala Harris. It's whoever it is that he appoints. Um, to the various positions around him, who's in his cabinet, etc. If Biden is able to address so much of the white supremacy and the and the racial violence and the police violence that we're, it will be because um, because of the grassroots movements that are going on in the United States, the abolished police movement that's going on in the United States, the Black Lives Matter protests that have just done an extraordinary job of showing real power and real courage in the face of violence. Um, Additionally, in terms of climate change, uh, the Sunrise Movement, again, for so many of the issues that we're seeing uh, and that that may help a Biden candidate, a Biden administration uh, sort of address the larger systemic problems, they will be because of grassroots movements. I have taken this action because of my profound conviction that all nations will gain from a reduction of tensions and a better relationship between the United States and the People's Republic of China. It is in this spirit that I will undertake what I deeply hope will become a journey for peace. Peace not just for our generation, but for future generations on this earth, we share together. Thank you and good night. 
Lizzie, one of the reasons we were so excited to speak to you this week is because you are an expert on the relationship between the US and China. And coming from an Australian perspective, and also I think neither Emma nor I are experts in China and its place in the world, we've we've always felt that the conversation about China in Australia is, you know, it's pretty poor, it's pretty simplistic. So we were hoping to get some insight from you into what that looks like, especially as we come into an election that is going to shape the world as much as it's going to shape America's domestic domestic agenda for the next few years. Um, so President Trump, his public attitude to China over the last four years, it's been kind of mercurial. So it's sort of veered between you know, belligerence and occasionally kind of bootlicking, a sort of bootlicking attitude towards <laughs> towards China. But lately that's really erred on the side of belligerence and whether that's, you know, him slapping tariffs on Chinese goods or blaming the Chinese virus, as he calls it, for the pandemic. But, you know, political rhetoric and what's coming out of the mouth of the president can often hide what's really going on. So could you tell us something of the story of that political relationship and also that trading relationship between the chi- between China and the US over the last four years? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things I want to just say, though, just as a side note, uh, is, this co- is this idea of political rhetoric. Um, and I want to actually uh, think about the ways in which rhetoric can have extraordinarily real consequences for ordinary people. Um, and so, yes, under the, under the Trump administration, we're seeing sort of a lot of hot air and a lot of actions that may contradict that hot air. But as a direct consequence of so much of the xenophobia that Trump is peddling, we're seeing a real increase in violence against Asian Americans and Chinese Americans. Uh, and one of the things that's really scary, just to stay on this point for a minute, is that Biden himself is also playing into this xenophobia. We see this with his campaign uh, video with coronavirus. And, I mean, we know that there's a long history of this. We know there's a long history of everyday people bearing the brunt of American foreign policy and its and its sort of um, posturing. And one example, just if I may, is in the early 1950s in the United States, uh, when there was really brutal fighting between the U.S. and China um, in the, the Korean War, the, the U.S. and Chinese soldiers were the major soldiers that came into sort of face-to-face combat in the 1950s. And what happened back home in the United States was that vandals looted Chinese-owned stores. They attacked uh, people of Asian heritage on the streets. Uh, and Chinese Americans during this moment, this surreal, uh, again, this moment of rhetoric as well as policy, they described themselves as feeling numb, numbed with fear, as one journalist, um, Gilbert Wu, he put it at the time. And so I just want to sort of emphasize that that rhetoric does have an extraordinarily um, uh, potent impact too. But if we think about um, sort of the ways in which Trump's uh, Trump's policies towards China have evolved over the past four years. I I would say that there are three key things. I would draw out three key things. Uh, and the first is the trade war. The second is this idea of a new cold war. And the third is a policy concept. It's called strategic competition. And I want to go into all three in a moment, but I also want to stress 
that all three of these ideas which have sort of cropped up under the Trump administration, they can be traced back uh, to earlier administrations uh, and they're threads that Trump has chosen to weave in a particular way and he's created a particular uh, sort of image with those threads. But I wouldn't say that his China policies have been an aberration or a diversion. In fact, they've certainly accelerated things, but it's not quite as out of the blue as some of his more sort of unhinged tendencies might suggest. Um, but in terms of the trade war itself, it's, you know, it's extraordinary. So just sticking with my first point about the trade war, it's extraordinarily important how significantly um, uh, Trump has played up this idea of American manufacturing and using China as a sort of foil for blaming the decline in manufacturing in the United States. And he's done so with the help of a sort of a team of uh, dinosaurial men, uh, to, put it, <laughs> to put it bluntly. Um, there's this man called Peter Navarro, uh, another called Robert Lighthizer, and a third called Wilbur Ross. And I'll tell you just about Peter Navarro very briefly is to say that he's a sort of disgraced economist. He's one of, uh, he's one of Trump's most important trade um, advisors, but he's a disgraced economist who wrote a giant book and created a, do a self-funded documentary called Death by China. Um, and it's incredibly um, uh, visceral and unsubtle depiction of uh, the U.S.-Chinese trade relationship uh, really since, the since 2001, so since China, China entered the World Trade Organization. And this death by China, as the name suggests, uh, really plays up to the death that the United States had um, from its trade with China and with China's ascension into the World Trade Organization. You know, it's filled with blood imagery and, you know, a map of the United States with a Chinese knife sort of bleeding the United States landmass to death. I actually play it um, for my classes. Um, and one of the things that I ask my students to do is to think, to think through historically, I mean, how do we... How do we overcome the message that Death by China brings, which is a very simple one, which is China has taken American jobs, um, it's not fair, it joining the World Trade Organization, it doesn't play by the international rules. And, I, and, it's, and it's, it's, it's very, um, it's an enticing sort of image and it's an enticing narrative that I think Trump himself has been able to, uh, to play upon at a much larger national scale. And that's been a really... Um, useful idea for him, uh, which is, uh, as, as we've seen, which is playing out in the polls and attracting people who, who are feeling the lived reality of uh, manufacturing decline. But I wanted to sort of emphasize, and we can't go into the whole uh, story here, but while China entering the World Trade Organization in 2001 was extremely important, it was to uh, international trade and to uh, sort of the, the supply chain or the value chain um, networks that operate with multinational corporations. It was part of a much, much longer story. And it's a much longer story of deindustrialization in the United States, industrialization in East Asia. And uh, just to sort of if I, if I may sort of tout <laughs> my own research here a little, is this is something that I talk about in my, in my book, which is that the concept of deindustrialization itself were, in the United States was coined by two scholars in 1982. 
And they're sort of writing about deindustrialization in 1982. It's a very um, important book that they wrote. Um, and they were saying, um, look, we're trying to make sense of the 1970s, the 1960s, even the 50s that we've just sort of lived through. And what and they, they use this term of deindustrialization. Um, and it's really important to note that right at this moment that they're using this term deindustrialization, it's around the same time that the concept of globalization is being coined by um, by political theorists and political scientists. And so this idea of deindustrialization and globalization sort of emerged in the sort of conceptual lexicon around the same time. And they are both similar processes, uh, and they and they are much, but they both have much deeper roots in the ways in which uh, American capital is allowed to operate. Um, and if you, if you deregulate uh, corporations and if you make it easier for corporations to move their manufacturing, their manufacturing overseas, if you allow for them to have tax havens, if you allow for them to skirt any kind of financial or regulatory um, limitations, then of course <laughs> you get the situation that you have today where we have um, extraordinarily poor conditions um, throughout the developing world uh, for workers that provide um, that provide goods that that get consumed at levels we've never like at, at levels of consumption that we um, in the United States or in Australia for example don't need and I think part of this conversation about manufacturing and about um, trade needs to also take into account conversations about consumption um, and it's got an environmental element to this too is that you know if we're going to be talking about trade wars if we're going to be talking about um, the, sort of the more pernicious elements of globalization we need to be thinking about the cultures of consumption that underpin them. The second major issue uh, in US-Chinese relations over the past four years, uh, the second issue I would raise uh, that's been going on is this idea of a new Cold War. And I won't actually delve into this too much, uh, but I, will, I do want to stress why we are not living in a new Cold War era. We are not living in an ideological clash uh, between capitalism and socialism, uh, capitalism and socialism, as we did during the Cold War. If we think about what the Cold War was, it was this extraordinarily large battle um, between these two competing visions for how do you structure an economic and political society. And we are not having that kind of debate um, uh, between the United States and China. Secondly, I would argue. So this is not a new Cold War because we're not living in a bipolar system either. We're living in a system that's far more fluid, um, that has far more, um, that other, that sort of smaller actors have far more leverage, particularly um, I would argue when they're used multilaterally. Um, and, we, and I think we can get to this if we, if we raise the question of sort of Australia's foreign policy a little later. Uh, the third point I want to emphasize in sort of uh, the changes that have happened in US-China under Trump, language and policy position of strategic competition. And Trump and Pence and others unveiled this um, sort of as a policy in uh, late 2017 uh, in the, the US national security strategy. They labeled China, along with Russia, as a strategic competitor. And what strategic competition uh, argues at its core is that America's long history of engagement with China has failed. And so strategic competition 
as a policy pits itself in opposition to a policy of engagement. Uh, and engagement as a policy concept, uh, and this is something that, um, you know, I, I, uh, I think needs more theorizing on, but it's certainly something that I sort of historicize in my own work. Engagement um, has been sort of the bedrock of America's China policy since 1972. So since Nixon and now that sort of famous meeting uh, in, in uh, China, this idea of engagement has been at the heart of America's China policy. So this is a really significant shift towards um, a very different policy platform. And what's really striking about it is that it has bipartisan support. Uh, and so within the China community, within the United States, um, former Obama administ administration officials have come out. Two in particular wrote an article in Foreign Affairs, one of the sort of high-profile high uh, journals in the country, arguing not only do we need a strategic competition approach, but arguing why it is that engagement failed, that we need strategic competition because engagement failed. And it's here that I think we get some real insight uh, into American foreign policy making and why this is such a flawed approach. And so what they argued was that engagement failed because China did not democratize. That the whole underpinning of engagement, even from this 1972 moment, according to this narrative, I want to just emphasize that this is a certain line of arguing, that, um, that, hot, that the history of America's engagement with China is one that failed because uh, China did not democratize and it did not change in the ways that the United States would like it to. It, it obfuscates the idea that there can be multiple kinds of engagement and that engagement itself has changed over time. Nixon didn't go to China because he thought going to China and engaging with China was going to change its domestic politics. China was still in the middle of a bloody, um, and I mean this literally, a bloody um, cultural revolution. It's towards the, it was towards the end of it, but it was still extraordinarily turbulent time in Chinese politics and society. Nixon was not thinking this is about um, changing China's politics. Instead, he was saying we need to engage with China in order to create, uh, in fact, the language that Nixon used was a more peaceful world. So Nixon spoke often about peace. And I know this is something uh, that his actions, if we spoke earlier about actions and rhetoric, his, you know, his decision to bomb Cambodia, etc., really undermines any, any idea that Nixon can be associated with peace. But nonetheless, his, um, his rationale for engaging with China was not one of we're going to change it. And, and if, you know, I'm looking at my book looks at the 1970s period. This idea of engaging with China was not, um, was not at all driven by this idea that it's going to change its democracy. It's going to change its politics in some kind of um, way that looks or resembles uh, the United States. On this idea of strategic competition, um, it hasn't been highly theorized, I will say. It sort of gets used sometimes as an adjective. So the United States is, a, is in a kind of competition, strategic kind of competition, but it's also something bigger than that. And we've seen it, um, we've seen it before in America's China policy. So we saw it um, under the Bush Jr. administration. He entered office um, with, uh, with a very clear sense um, of China as being the major threat and it wasn't until, and, and he used the phrase and the, non, the notion of strategic competition. So, so Bush Jr. 
um, saw China as a strategic competitor, wanted to push this line of China as being um, being the problem. And it wasn't until 9-11 that he really changed tact. And he and Bush did a complete about turn in his um, in his policy towards China. He launched what were known as the Strategic Economic Dialogues, SEDs, and it was um, the opposite of strategic competition. It was engagement and it was dialogue. And these were, you know, they've been criticised as, um, you know, not not producing the results that some of the American administration administration officials might have wanted. But uh, but nonetheless, what we see is Bush choosing to abandon this idea of strategic competition because there was a larger imperative. For him, he saw the larger imperative being 9-11. I think what we see today and the problem with strategic competition is that the larger imperative is right under our noses and yet neither the Trump administration nor the Biden administration is willing to take it on at full fa- at full. F- at full face, and that is um, climate change. The, nine, the, the 9-11 imperative that the Bush administration faced um, today is climate action and the climate crisis. Um, and of course, nations compete. I mean, competition is an integral, is an inherent part of a nation state. Um, but the problem with a strategic competitive approach, with, with taking strategic competition at the heart of America's China policy is that it pits things in zero-sum terms. That to think of um, China in zero-sum terms only escalates and creates what political theorists, political scientists call a security dilemma, in which um, the the sort of the idea, the the fear of a threat creates the threat itself. Um, and we need to avoid that. And we need to avoid that because of climate change, because of the climate crisis that the globe is facing. Um, and, and strategic competition is not a framework that will allow for action on that to occur. I think it's really important that we come back to that question about climate change. But before we do that, I do want to pick up on a comment you made just before, and you're talking about the, you know, this agenda of democratisation in China. And I was keen to get your perspective on that, because I think that... Here in Australia, often, you know, any a reasoned debate about Australia's relationship with China often gets displaced to this question about democracy in China and the possibility of Chinese democratisation. And I feel that it's something that gets quite readily weaponised. Um, and I also think in some ways it's a distraction from those bigger imperatives like climate change. So I was wondering if I could get your perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, so there are two things I would say to that. On the one hand, I think this idea of China not being a democracy and so therefore it's a threat, it's, it really doesn't, um, it doesn't ring true because if we look at the Saudis, for example, then we see that this is not about um, regimes at all. This is about power and this is about, um, I, I would argue in the US-China case, uh, technological know-how. China is more technologically sophisticated than the United States in a range of areas um, and soon to be climate technology, climate um, renewable energy, etc. And so there's a much bigger existential threat that China poses. Um, far more than I think this idea that, oh, China's an authoritarian regime, and so therefore that's the problem. Uh, What I would say, though, is that the United States and China have a much, really quite a deep history um, in which US policymakers used China 
as a sort of symbol of this idea of an American missionary impulse, that America's contact with China is able to, simply by virtue of it being American contact with China, is going to lead to democratic changes within China itself. And part of the reason for that is... Um, the real, the very long history of missionary work within China in the late 19th century, uh, missionaries and business people and diplomats from the United States worked together in their visions for um, American imperial ambitions in China and in the Asia Pacific region. Um, and so the missionary image, the idea of saving souls, the idea of changing a nation, um, those ideals I think have really been like from the get-go were so intertwined with policymaking and they've continued to percolate in really interesting ways. I think if we think about uh, 1949, when China um, or the Chinese Communist Party came to power in the United States, that really led to this, this reckoning uh, within the policymaking community about why did the State Department lose China? How could the State Department have lost China? Firstly, of course, there's this sort of proprietorial notion that they could have ever owned China or held China. But there's something more going on there. And there's this idea that... Uh, to, to have engaged with China was to lead China down a particular path, was to take China down a particular road towards democracy. And so you see in um, one of the major State Department uh, white papers that were released in 1949, this claim that these aren't real Chinese communists, that the Chinese communists, it's not part of who Chinese people are, that they've, fors they've forsaken their Chinese, I think that's the language was they've forsaken their Chinese heritage uh, because, because of their relationship with the Soviet Union, the implication being that it's really that the China was becoming a Soviet puppet and that the Communist Party within China was not, um, was not sort of uh, part of its own context and its own uh, political milieu. I think that I think that is that's actually we'll come back to Australia in a minute, but I do think that that sort of detailed history is a really good reminder to us that the U.S.-China relationship it's operating in quite a from the U.S.'s perspective it's operating in quite a different register to what we see in Australia, where historically you know to simplify grossly but possibly not too much the Australian attitude to China has been one of highly racialized fear rather than you know. A, it being a, representing a place where we've seen this sort of extension of power ambitions and of democratize, you know, and of, of you know the wish for democratization. Coming back to I guess the the right now, so you mentioned before this idea of bipartisanship in U.S. China, in U.S. policy towards China, and you kind of alluded to the fact that there's probably going to be more continuities and differences between. Biden's approach to China and Trump's, then there will be differences. Could you unpack that a little bit and tell us what you'd expect from a Biden administration? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, one of the things, I mean, I, I'm always sceptical about um, the sort of pre-election promises or the pre-election sort of uh, debates versus what it's like once you actually get into office. Um, 
But anyway, having looked at the Democratic Party platform, one of the things that I, I have, there are differences from Trump. So the Biden campaign and the Democrats have tried to sort of differentiate themselves from, from Trump in terms of China uh, by, uh, in you know, three key ways, I would say. So firstly, there's this real emphasis on um, America's allies and partners in the Asia-Pacific region. Um, secondly, uh, they use the language of we as Democrats don't want to fall into the trap of a new Cold War. But the third major difference um, that actually is not different to Trump, but is different from uh, previous Democratic platforms, is that this current Biden platform has dropped reference to support of a one China policy. So the, the idea of a one-China policy um, has been central to uh, China's uh, engagement itself with the United States since 1979. Um, and what it argues, the one-China policy argues, is that, um, that China and the island of Taiwan will eventually be reunited. Uh, what the One China policy allows for is this concept of strategic ambiguity, because even though that's a statement in which China um, asserts its uh, interest in reuniting with Taiwan, it's sort of left ambiguously to the future as to when that's going to happen. Um, and the United States, in its One China sort of reference, has since 79 said, okay, well, we will uh, support we, we acknowledge, sorry, we acknowledge uh, your language of one China policy. And so for Biden to drop that um, in this particular moment is really quite significant. So what we're seeing under the Trump administration is an increase on the support for Taiwan, so an increase in weapons sales to Taiwan that we've already seen in recent, uh, uh, in recent memory uh, in Taiwan. And so in 1995 and 1996, uh, the United States was able to send in a tanker into the Taiwan Strait uh, to ward off Chinese aggression, uh, and that and that worked. It worked in sort of sending China back, in sort of supporting Taiwan. That kind of action would no longer stand. Um, uh, China now is not China of 1995 and 1996, and China would not allow for that kind of support to happen. And so what we're seeing with the arming of Taiwan is, um, is a different approach, but one that nonetheless sort of accelerates this militarised um, Asia. So, of course, this is all happening under the shadow of climate change and the question of a global response to the climate crisis. And China has recently made a unilateral commitment to carbon neutrality by 2060. How do you think the US can or will approach that? That's a, oh, that's a great question. Um, I, so I just, just on this issue of China's announcement, um, it's really important, I think, to emphasise that Xi Jinping made this announcement within the chambers of the United Nations. So it was a very deliberate um, uh, decision to bring not only China's policy to the international community, but to make a real pointed statement, I think, uh, to, to say that China is engaging with, you know, the, the, the flawed, sure, the flawed, but the only 
uh, multilateral, uh, genuinely multilateral uh, uh, international organization that we have as states. And that's and it's extreme. It's an extreme uh, contrast to the to the United States, uh, at least under Trump. The internal debates within China about sort of what to do about uh, the climate crisis and about renewable energy that that debate has now been mostly decided. This is a public uh, statement to say that we have had our internal debates and this is where we want to go. But I do think it's important to keep in mind that while China may have this sort of this green um, approach, it's still also doing at the same time uh, like harmful brown things as well. And so we're having more green things and at the same time, uh, they're not doing fewer harmful things and that needs to, and that needs to sort of uh, be adjusted. So I wanna, I do think it's important uh, to emphasize that China is doing this because it's in its own interest to do this. Uh, climate, change, climate crisis and climate change uh, is something that is affecting um, Chinese peoples. And one of the most important things for Xi Jinping is maintaining, um, you know, some kind of uh, uh, what, you know, harmony is a you know, politicized term, but some kind of uh, semblance of uh, satisfaction amongst, amongst Chinese peoples themselves. And so it's certainly in, in China's interest to do this, just as I would say it's in Australia's and the United States' interest to do something just as ambitious with climate as well. Uh, this, is, this is a global issue that just needs to be center, uh, front and center of all kinds of policy making, um, whether it be foreign policy making, whether it be domestic policy making, it needs to just be understood as the crisis uh, that needs to be addressed. We've been told we have 10 years uh, to do something, to make some changes, and, and we need action. We need our leaders to make, make these decisions. I would also say on China's um, sort of announcement, okay, yes, it's a long time away um, and it sort of might sound lofty, uh, but there's also some very real material changes underpinning it. And one of them is in terms of technology. China has been investing huge amounts of money into carbon capture technology, into renewable energy, and it's really innovating uh, in sort of how it, how it goes about addressing the climate crisis. Europe is seeing this. Europe, many nations in Europe are seeing what China is doing in terms of its sort of tech technological capacity when it comes to sort of renewables and, and carbon capture, et cetera. And Europe is starting to want to get in on that. And what needs to happen is the United States uh, and Australia, for that matter, need to similarly realise that in order to um, in order to really combat the climate crisis, we need to work cooperatively and collaboratively in in the tech that that comes with it. And so, to, so there's an extraordinary strong link, I think, between climate action on the one hand and climate technology on the other. And that's something that I think really needs to be central to these debates. Particularly during the, the Trump era, we, we are encouraged in Australia, at least, to see China in very, as you say, in very kind of binary terms, in terms of this zero-sum game around threat. We had, you know, the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo essentially come to Australia to Darwin and say, you have to choose China or the United States. And as much as the Morrison government um, and, and the defence minister in particular have tried to kind of walk a line, I think they've made it fairly clear who who they would choose if, if kind of push came to shove. 
what do you think, you know, given the, the extraordinary complexity of, of what you've been speaking about in terms of China's role in the world and the relationship between China and the United States, what do you think all of this might mean for Australia in, in the event of a, of a second Trump term or, or, alternatively, a Biden presidency? I think there are a couple of issues uh, going on here. Uh, on the one hand, what we've seen, I, I'll get into the nitty-gritty first and then go big. Um, and so on the one hand, what we've seen recently in July of this year was the Morrison government releasing um, his, what they call the Defence Strategic Update and Force Structure Plan. And this Defence Strategic Update and Force Structure Plan was one of the, one of the first major defence policy documents in a number of years. And what it did was it allocated $270 billion over the next year, over the next 10 years for defence. Um, but it also said that Australia, that the reason it was allocating so much money to its defence budget was that Australia needed to take, and I quote, greater responsibility for our own security and, another quote, grow its self-reliant ability to deliver deterrent effects. And this is, in, this is um, very much in response to um, a sense in which the Trump administration is perhaps unreliable. Um, uh, but I, I I think there's something more going on than simply a response to Trump. I think that I think the immediate response might be Trump, but there's a bigger picture going on. And we would see this even if we had a Biden, um, a Biden uh, administration uh, come into power next year. Because what, what's going on in the Australian policy circles is this, ex, this extraordinary expansion on the one hand of Australia's defence budget and defence department, while the DFAT and diplomatic arm of this story is contracting and continues to be contracted. Um, and so Australia is at the moment structurally encouraging a defence forward foreign policy. We need to ensure that we have a foreign policy that is not determined by the Defence Department, that is not um, that is not sidelining these ideas of diplomacy and the importance of diplomacy, particularly given, I think, Chloe, your point earlier about Australia's sort of very long history of xenophobia when it comes to Chinese, uh, talking about China and Chinese threats. I mean, it's part of this real insecurity in Australian history about what is Australia's place in the region. Um, you know, for the first 70 years, as, as we know, the first 70 years of our federation was under a literal policy of white Australia. And Australia's never really had a reckoning with how it thinks about its place in the Asia-Pacific region, what it wants to do in, and what kind of nation it wants to be in five, in 10, in 20, in 50 years' time. There's this idea that we can sort of just muddle our way through with a few more guns and a few more boats um, and expanding and bloating the defence budget without really thinking about what kind of nation we want to be, what kind of diplomatic engagements we want to have. I mentioned the Pacific Islands um, you know, right in our neighbourhood who, who have been pushing Australia and, 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 and other, other major powers in the region to, to, to get action on climate change and on climate justice. These bigger issues about engaging 
deeply and meaningfully and creatively with the region that we live in um, is really, really important and we don't see it. We see a real limited vision in Australian foreign policy at the moment and a really limited idea of what it means to be uh, living in the region that we do. Thanks for listening to Barely Getting By and what turns out to be our 50th episode. You can look out for Chloe and I in the Sydney Morning Herald this week and we've got an op-ed being published on the state of American democracy. You can also sign up to our newsletter. There's a link in the show notes. And we'll be back tomorrow with a special episode, an interview with ABC journalist and podcast host Matt Bevan. Thank you.